Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, and using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we are talking about science-based storytelling with our neighbors and experts, the Hakai Institute. And we are joined not only by a mix of Hakai scientists and communicators, we also have special hosts in training from the Cortez Island Academy. Two students who are behind the scenes, and if we are lucky, will join us on microphone for a bit as part of their course. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play? I'm just really. Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Kalahus, the Kalaman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. So we're going to begin with introductions. I am your host today, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. And besides being the host of Folk U Radio, I am also right now working with the Cortez Island Academy to lead our Creative Tools for Truth-Telling segment of the course, where, amongst other things, the students are learning a little bit more about the history and current practices of journalism, and they're producing not just one, but two podcasts. And we are also joined today by two students. Here's the first. Will you introduce yourself, Igor? Tell us your pronouns and tell me why you're here today. Yes, Manda. My name is Igor. My pronouns are he, him. I'm from Germany and I came here for the Cortez Island Academy, where I'm very fortunate to have a podcasting course and to experience what it's like being here in the studio of the radio. And one more student. Will you tell us uh, who you are, your pronouns, and why are you here today? Uh, hello, my name's Aster. I'm part of the CIA uh, uh, my pronouns are he, they, it, and I'm here at, because it looked fun. You know you're doing something right if podcasting radio and science communication looks fun because it is. So I thought we would go around and hear from each of you, maybe starting Oh no, maybe uh, maybe ending with with Josh um, uh, and starting with Bennett. Hey there, I'm Bennett Whitnell. I'm one of the I'm a, and my pronouns are he him. 
I'm one of the videographers with Tula Foundation Hakai Institute, and I'm based on Quadra Island. Happy to be here today. Welcome. And Christina? Hi, I'm Christina Blanchflower, she, her, and I'm a video producer, editor, animator at the Hakai Institute. And Alana? Hey gang, um, I'm Kat Pine, she, her also, um, and I'm based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia, so it's very much nighttime where I am right now. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I'm a videographer, producer, editor for the Hack Guy Institute, and very excited to be here practicing my radio voice. <laughs> You're doing well. Um, my name is Alana Klaus. I'm going to tell you that we're hearing right now from Alana, but we're not hearing well from Alana because she's got a bad reception because she's doing exciting work way out in the bush somewhere uh, that has even worse internet connection than Cortez. So, you know, it's somewhere really exciting in the bush. Um, and hopefully we're going to figure it out so that she'll be able to communicate later. And... Now, I think we're at Josh. Is that right? Hi, I'm Josh Silberg. I'm not underwater like Alana. <laughs> uh, my pronouns are he, him, and uh, I'm based in North Vancouver, uh, BC. I am a science communications coordinator, uh, wearer <laughs> of many hats with the Hakai Institute. Uh, so I help with video producing and blogging and media liaising and generally helping scientists tell their stories to various audiences. Okay, so as you maybe can tell, listener, we've got a full house and some of the full house is actually in the house, or as the students call it, the radio shack. Uh, and some of the house is only virtually here um, and uh, they are uh, on Zoom and I get to attest to the fact that Katrina is truly somewhere on the East Coast because her Zoom and how could Zoom lie um, is showing us darkness. So we're going to make sense we hope of, of oh I think we might have an opportunity for Alana to actually introduce herself a little bit more um using more ancient technology alana can you hear us and, and can we hear you uh, no oh uh we can only not hear you because you're muted so can you hear me now yes okay sorry i'm yes um up in the uh great bear rainforest territory the health and we and our internet service is a bit spotty so um, we're gonna try this again my name is alana Kloss, and i live and work on quadra island i oversee the annex biodiversity lab um, where we study all things biodiversity primarily though focusing on the planktonic environment um and yeah i'm really happy to be on the show thanks so much for having us Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, both our audience and you being willing to um, deal with a little bit of the chaos because it's really fun when you get a bunch of people around a table, virtually and real, to to communicate and have a conversation about uh, something that is often a little hard to, to talk about, which is this idea of how do we tell the stories that really matter? 
how are we telling the stories and making sense of the things in our world that we know are truths that need to be communicated and they're things often that we know a lot of scientific detail about but when we try to simplify them or communicate them or make them appealing in that way that people expect their media to be appealing today, it can seem really hard. And I don't know anybody who does it better than Hackeye, so it feels like a real pleasure to have you here. And I thought we would start, if you're willing, with Josh telling us a little bit about what it, how he got to this place and what it even means to be a science communicator. Uh, yeah, thanks. So science communication as a profession didn't exist when I was even an undergrad uh, university. Like, you know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a science communications coordinator, or at least it wasn't called that. Um, I mean, we can think back to Carl Sagan and other kind of early, early folks that we would consider to be science communicators. Um, and you yeah, basically, it's helping scientists tell their stories to different audiences. So as far as making it interesting or uh, how to do it, it kind of depends on who you're trying to talk to. And, you know, are you using video? Are you on the radio? All these different mediums have different ways of doing it. But uh, yeah, I'm of the mind that you can make great white sharks boring and you can make carbon flowing into the ocean interesting uh, and vice versa. So it's not necessarily some topics are a little easier than others, but um Science in general is fascinating, and what we find is uh, the the minimum for our audience is you have to be curious. That's that's about it. Other than that, we cross kind of all sorts of demographics. So tell us a little bit about y- you, though. How did you get here? Do you study science to get here? Do you study communications? How did you get here? Right. So um, most science communicators come from all sorts of different backgrounds. They could be theater, it could be uh, science, etc. My personal background is in marine science. Uh, I got a master's in resource environmental management, so kind of an interdisciplinary master's from Simon Fraser, and, and, and I kind of treated that as a translation, learning how to translate between audiences. Um, so my background's in, in biology and ecology, but uh, I kind of backed into a communications career because I didn't have one different or one specific organism I necessarily wanted to study. I like to flit between interesting topics. So that's how I ended up in, in communication. And can you, are there other people who have backgrounds that, Josh, do you know if any of the other um, uh, people with us today, or you guys can jump in and say that have um, a blended background, uh, both in communications or journalism and science? I would say pretty much everybody on Whoa. on our media team, but I'll I'll let I mean uh, I'll let I'll let Katrina go first. She <laughs> definitely has I different... always feel I always feel like the thick one because I didn't do science, and I'm always like, guys, can you explain this to me? <laughs> it's really, but that's what made that's what for me has made this job so fun. Is every story that we're telling is completely new to me, and I get to learn about something brand new, and I also get to ask the really dumb questions and uh, not feel bad about it. <laughs> You're going to have to help me then. You'll be the one who's like, uh. <laughs> See, but there are no dumb questions because if you're wondering, there's probably somebody else in the audience wondering too. So, um, you know, we like to think that's where that curiosity comes in. Um, if you're wondering it, somebody else is too. And so, you know, there are ways to ask it. And oftentimes, uh, it, it's just a matter of explaining it a different way. My view as a communicator is, 
the person doesn't understand it's on me to try a different analogy or a different way to understand it's not on them to know everything because most people don't someone give me the uh, the opposite um story of how they they got to being able to do both science and uh and and storytelling I probably have the opposite story. I have very little science background. Um, I went to school for communications and visual arts. So I have done a lot of things in my career, but I've um, never worked really with science. In fact, I like to say they didn't really even offer science at the college that I went to. So I have a very limited understanding, but I think it has, like Kat said, been really helpful because part of, um, especially in our series, Kat and my series, Long Story Shorts, part of what we're trying to do is get these science concepts out to uh, people that might not necessarily have a science background, but also keep them interesting for people that do. Um, So it's been kind of interesting to walk that line, but I'm usually the one that is like, I don't understand this, so no one else is going to either, because sometimes these scientists get a little wrapped up in all the science, and you have to remind them. You have to bring them back down once in a while. And then who are, who, who's the, uh, the, the um, worst offenders, maybe? <laughs> the wrong thing to say, but who, if they could, would just talk science um, hypotheses and, uh, and words that none of us know if they were allowed to? That's a good question. I think in my experience, we usually all of our science checking comes from Josh and another member of our team, Kelly. So I would give them the brunt of that comment. But I know that if I were to go a little bit deeper and talk to the people who are just doing science, you know, that are out in the field or in the lab all day, I'm sure they would uh, have a lot more to say. So that's why we filter through Josh and Kelly. <laughs> so, I mean, jargon's really useful when you're talking like... There's this idea in communication that jargon is bad, but jargon is quite useful. Uh, and likewise, words can be jargon like um, significant means something specific in, in statistics, but signif- everyone understands that word. They just might not understand what you mean by it. Um, and likewise, jargon, when you're talking to people in your subfield, is really useful to be able to talk. So it, that comes back to it's all about your audience and whether or not you understand. Um, I will say the more we work with certain scientists, the better they get. Um, and oftentimes, if they're talking to a different level, it's because they're not used to talking to that audience or they think they're talking to a colleague that understands um, maybe the chemistry or the bi- biology behind it. but. They don't, so it's just a matter of finding those different ways of doing it. But uh, there's nothing inherently bad about uh, scientists or scientists using jargon. It's just a matter of identifying the audience and kind of talking uh, with with the right kind of tone and, and at the right speed. Yeah, I'll just chime in and say sometimes as scientists, we get so caught up in sort of communicating with each other in our world. You know, we're surrounded by our lab mates and um, other people who are studying similar topics. And so then we just get used to using language, um, even when we're writing scientific papers, that is sort of more geared towards communicating with people in our field. And so um, the series that you're interviewing us on today both Microworlds as well as all of the other great series that um, Josh and 
the rest of the media team have been putting out there are really, really good because it forces us behind the scenes to sort of ask ourselves if we were the viewer, what would we want to see and how would we want it to be portrayed? And then with the help of the rest of our lovely media team, they short, sort of take the science um, that we have put forth and sort of make it translatable to the average person. That was Alana. I'm so glad we got a clear connection so we could hear your your wisdom flowing to us clearly. Um, I love that idea too, Josh, of the idea that jargon is not necessarily bad. And I think it actually is so important with all communication that we every once in a while stop and unpack our words to like anyway right we so much we the more we know the more we start loading meaning into the words and it's always filtered through our own experience and then through who the the consumer of that of that information or those words so i yeah we were on uh we were on cortez teaching the high school students a little while ago and the example for jargon that i used there one was like if you say cortez or quadra you know, if, if you're in Portland, Oregon, they don't know what you're talking about. Similarly, if you're in Portland, Oregon, and you say Vancouver, they might think Vancouver, Washington, not. So um, even place names and things like that, uh, the different, w- which one you mean, uh, they might not know. Or if you say the name of a town, uh, uh, it depends on where you are. So that in and of itself just goes to show that, like, um, what is jargon and what people know it's about trying to kind of putting yourself in the audience, trying to imagine what they, they might know. Oh, and then adding the context. So maybe it's Quadra Island. It's across from Campbell River. Maybe they know where that is. Or maybe they don't. Maybe it's X number of kilometers north of Vancouver. That's the kind of closest they can get. So uh, That's a great example. So you both, all of you have hinted a little bit at this, but I want to go even deeper into this idea of why scientists need storytelling tools and why we need to hear the stories that you've spent all this energy into telling us uh, in a compelling way. This is the problem. Yeah. Why science communication? (laughs) I mean, science is everywhere, right? It affects our daily life. It affects everything. I mean, I think during the pandemic, it it may be a little more in your face than usual. But I mean, weather, uh, climate, uh, all of these things are, you know, related to science. Uh, Food, you know, has a lot of science in it. So uh, relating how these things affect you or people around you, um, kind of weaves through absolutely everything, uh, everything we do. So yeah, Kat, you have a point. I mean, I, I just wanted to add, you know, so much of the the science that we do at Hackai, this long-term coastal monitoring, it's all geared around climate change, or so much of it is geared around climate change. And these, you know, from the seas to the skies, and these stories are are so important. And, uh, you know, it's we all hear about climate change stories in our day-to-day lives, but, you know, it's, uh, I think, to drive to drive home these points can never hurt. And so, you know, I think being able to, produce these media pieces that are interesting and vibrant and relatable, you know, can just help to remind people what we're facing out there. Yeah, I totally agree, Kat. I also think that, you know, science is sometimes this um, kind of other world for people who aren't immersed into it. And part of understanding science is understanding what's happening behind the scenes. And so I think that this um, way of communication through storytelling, whether that's visual or 
um, you know, uh, maybe a creative written piece, it can allow our um, viewers or uh, the average person to connect with the topic more and it sort of starts to demystify the data behind it and that's really what we want to do as scientists. Our science is only so good as you know for the number of people who it reaches and so trying to reach as many audiences as we possibly can is one of the main goals here and I think it's so great that we have such a strong media team and as well that you know science is starting to be um, communicated through different art forms um, like painting and creative visual shows so I think it's also just about kind of trying to demystify it and make it um, relatable. I love that idea of science actually being everywhere and just that we all get to share a part of it and I'd say that's one of the reasons that your team seems so strong and also intriguing is because everyone plays this really important part like in every community not because you have exactly the same skills but because you've figured out a way to take each of your skills towards a common mission and so I am wondering from the is is communication in that sort of science-based storytelling is it at the heart of Hackeye's mission or did that get added on later um yes and no I mean I think uh, most scientists I know, whether or not they want to do it themselves or not, they want their science out there. They want their colleagues, they want other people to know about it. They don't want to just kind of do it for the sake of it. So I would say communications has always been uh, a core part of what the Tula Foundation, who, who runs the Hakai Institute, has been about. There's also Hakai Magazine, which is coastal and global, um, and they've been around for uh, well over five years as well. And so they have coastal stories from around the world. And so, yeah, um, it definitely is a key part of it is to not just do science, but also share that science with other colleagues uh, on the coast, throughout Canada, throughout the world. You know, uh, I don't think anybody really wants to feel like they're doing what they're doing in a vacuum sort of thing. My godfather is an astrophysicist, and he once told me that exactly something like 1.4 people read an average astrophysics article or journal when you go to all the trouble to getting published and printing them so um you know i think they just dream about and also when you think about it oh my god astrophysics i mean it's so interesting why aren't we doing more to communicate it <laughs> in the oh you know gosh, in a storytelling yeah. way does anyone else want to chime in on 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 that idea of um, it being at the foundation uh, of what the Tula Foundation and the Hakai Institute's about versus it kind of being something one's figured out over time. You don't have to. It's always hard to know when people want to speak on Zoom. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely something we're figuring out over time. The You know, just our core media team in the short time that I've been with Hakai has doubled in size and we're telling better, more interesting stories, you know, on more platforms and in different ways than ever before. It's, you know, it's, but, um, but I think as Josh says, it's, it's been an, you know, an important element of what we do at Hackeye from the start, but we are always evolving in how we tell those stories. And it's super, super exciting to see that. And as we shift into talking about the series a little bit, one, one change we have made more recently is, especially with our series on YouTube, our video series is um, it's decoupled a bit 
from directly covering Hakai Institute science. It's more related to the topics. So uh, we're not just uh, in the early days, we were mostly covering stories that our scientists were doing directly. So the papers that were coming out and the results, whereas now um, we're not, you know, venturing too far, uh, but it's more about kind of the themes uh, or we have uh, a couple of different series that all have different kind of flavors to them. Um, but that's one shift we've seen in our in our uh, institute media side is just kind of moving from very specific to kind of broader uh, ideas that might be able to kind of reach uh, more a, a different audience, I guess. Well, that seems like the perfect segue to introducing the first series. Josh, you want to do that for us? Yeah. So uh, the first series we came out in this kind of new. Uh, era, so to speak, is called Long Story Shorts. Uh, it's an animated uh, uh, short, so they're one, one and a half minute longs, and uh, each one has a topic. Um, we can go through a couple of kind of people's favorites, but uh, essentially, yeah, they are what they sound like, long story shorts. They are little vignettes that kind of get you in a minute, a minute and a half to understanding kind of a piece of jargon or a topic maybe you didn't know what it was before but with animation. So Kat and uh, uh, Christina, can you tell us a little bit more about this yeah. process? Like, you know, why this? Why was this the thing that you wanted to focus on? Um, and and how did it go? How did the two, how did it go with the two of you working <laughs> together? Um, well, I guess the first thing that we should say is we are missing one critical member of our long story shorts team, um, Mercedes Mink, who's been doing a lot of the uh, illustrations and the, the graphic assets for us. So we wouldn't really be able to do this without her. Um, she's another recent addition to the team. Um, and she has been totally awesome, uh, wonderful artist. And so um, she's been taking our ideas and kind of making them put to life so that Kat and I can animate them. Um, and it's been really interesting. I think it's gone really well so far. We're basically, as Josh said, taking these bigger topics and concepts and trying to distill them down into a minute and a half. So that can be challenging in and of itself because a lot of these concepts can be um, kind of take a little more explanation. So it's a balance <laughs> between getting a very specific language um, and a, a short amount of words to it to describe a, a long topic. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's so many times when we're covering these very dense science topics when we think like, man, wouldn't it be great if we could just point people to a little explainer video so they could understand this topic. And like, I think that's kind of where the idea for this series came from. Um, you know, and we're covering topics like ocean stratification, ancient DNA, mixotrophy, hydrothermal vents, broadcast spawning, like topics that, let's face it, sound pretty dry. But thanks to Mercedes and her magic in graphic design you know we, we put a real splash of color to these topics and make them fun and interesting and relatable and like yeah i mean i think these are videos that people really enjoy watching um and you know we're so proud i think of what we've what we've come up with these are great resources for teachers um or really just anyone you know that kind of just needs a quick explanation of what is bioluminescence <laughs> And are you getting feedback are people using them in their classes and uh i think you've um you know, expose some of the Cortez and Academy students to them, like, you know, what are you hearing? What are they saying? Yeah, it's been a big hit with teachers, especially like, you know, if you can imagine, like you've got this curriculum, you're trying to teach a class and it's like, okay, students, let's just point you to this video on what is ancient DNA. So that's been 
I think where where the most of our of our fan base has come from. We also have included um, like a little "Hey Teachers" segment um, in the in the description on YouTube of our videos that tells teachers like what what things are featured in the video, so they can see if it's like something that would be good for this, you know, grade nine geography class or what have you. Um, so that so that feature has also been really popular with teachers, and and all of our videos now are in English and French, which makes them especially useful in classrooms. Um, so I think teachers has been that's been our biggest fan base, and we also are always taking suggestions for future episode ideas. So, so uh, if there's teachers out there that are like, man, I just wish I could point my students to what is you know ocean acidification, like hit us up, and we will make that an episode next season three. <laughs> How do they hit you up? Uh, media at hackeye.org or, yeah. uh, or any yes. social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, mostly. But uh, yeah, media at hackeye.org is, is the email that will go. Or, or you can go to uh, our website and we have a contact us form. But uh, yeah, we love hearing from teachers. I think one challenge is always like, you know, the bulk of our, our stuff is on YouTube, but there's just so much out there and for teachers especially, but for everybody. And so how, um, you know, how, how do we go to people where they are? And it's one thing to have a teacher say it's useful. It's another for them to know about it in the first place. Uh, um, the nice part about long story shorts is, you know, it's not like where they used to roll in. This will be a generational <laughs> thing when they would roll in the TV with a VCR and plug in and just kind of like turn off and these videos aren't that because they're a minute minute and a half right like they're like a a moose bouche a little like tape <laughs> that would introduce you to a topic and then you could do an activity or whatever else um but they do they are condensed down to be like here's a, a good starting place i love the idea of the science fandom uh, who is the science and growing the science fandom why why a minute and a half it just seems so short is that all we can pay attention to these days? For the lazy people, right? I mean, a lot of this stuff is really long and it's it's really complex. And a lot of people who just want to have a general foundational knowledge of what you're talking about, they don't need the nitty gritty details and all the caveats about, you know, well, this is like this, except for when it's like this, in some cases, and some fish do this, you know, it's just a minute and a half, quick and dirty. So you can have um, an explanation kind of of what these, a lot of them are terms or concepts that you might hear in the science uh sphere i guess out there and thank god they're only 90 seconds because this series is animated <laughs> and it takes yeah. so long to animate oh my gosh i would die if these were 10 minute animated videos yeah we yeah, have far fewer <laughs> how long a video should be i mean we'll get into the other series too but like each of our series are different lengths and it, like how long should a video be is kind of like how long should an essay it's like it should be as long as it needs to be yeah and so in this case you could absolutely do 10 minutes on bioluminescence but um yeah on top of the animation uh barrier that that would take a long time it's like do people want that much detail and they can get it elsewhere it's that like connection point to get them to i don't know fall down a youtube rabbit hole or a wikipedia rabbit hole or or whatever else to learn more i would say my my at least my children would say, no, they do not want more. They just wish I could give <laughs> a minute and a half or less. They're probably less. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Kat and Christina, have you watched the Micro Worlds series or am I putting you on the spot? Oh, we've watched it. I've edited some of those as well. Oh, great. So we're familiar and it's, a, it's incredible. 
It's a really fun series. Um, and Josh and Bennett can tell you, and Alana can tell you a little bit more about that. Um, but very fun visuals and uh, definitely taking a closer look at some little critters you don't think about all too often, or at least I don't. Uh, so tell us a little bit more, Josh, Alana, and Bennett, about the Micro Worlds uh, series. What is it? Um, describe it. I, I, I like that you just had it pitched by Christina. So, Alana's laughing because she thinks about Plankton all the time. <laughs> I am. It's honestly hard to believe that more people don't think about Plankton as much as I do. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I can just sort of give a, a, a little bit of an introduction. I think Josh came to me, um, I guess, a couple years ago now, um, and I was pretty new in my um, my role with the Biodiversity Lab at Hackeye at the time. And actually, the whole lab was brand new. I just um, started. We were just building it right from the ground up. Um, and we finally had all of our microscopes set up. And Josh said, you know, I want to create the first narrative documentary on Earth about plankton. And I thought that is super cool. So um, we got a bunch of really, really lovely uh, high-performance cameras, and um, we hooked them up to microscopes. And uh, you know, we can get into the whole process of it in a little bit. But um, we basically started collecting as many um, planktonic organisms from different environments at different depths as we could. And we had these huge events where we all got into rooms, and all we did for a full week was video plankton. And um, yeah, Microworlds was born. I should say, I did not say that. We were the first. <laughs> there aren't that many uh, documentaries about plankton, and we'll get into why. But uh, it's not necessarily the first, but it is um, the, the idea behind Microworlds was kind of like that your magic school bus style shrunk down into the plankton and get to see all of these critters that, you know, they were all caught right off Quadra and Cortez. So um, they're all from right right there. They're all swimming around right now. Well, maybe not. Some are some are seasonal. But, you know, they all came from, from right in front of the doorsteps and uh, just kind of showing people a, a kind of alien-looking world that's, that's right there. Um, the reason there aren't more Plankton documentaries is because they're a pain in the butt to film. Um, and maybe Bennett can can chat a little bit about. Uh, I'm guessing you hadn't filmed plankton before this, Bennett. No, that, and that was one of the first things that I was tasked with filming. Um, yeah, plankton are they're obviously tiny. That's why you don't see so many uh, documentaries about them. But they play such an important role in our oceans and um, beyond. Um, but yeah, they're so small and they move around a ton. They're hard to catch. Uh, in the first place. Uh, thankfully, we have some amazing scientists that can help us do that. Um, yeah. How did you shoot it, Bennett? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we, once the um, plankton were collected, we put them under the microscope, often in just little Petri dishes where they would be zipping around and we'd be trying to get them to settle down. Um, but if you can imagine, these little guys are, they seem to move a hundred times faster than we do. So keeping them still and in frame and in focus. Imagine a sesame seed that's just trying to get Another... away from you. And, and, and you're trying, with a lot of legs and you're trying to. And it's... They also live in a very dark environment normally, so they don't particularly light, like uh, light shining upon them. 
so they evade our cameras very well. Um, but we, we also used some different tools other than microscopes. We have um, some macro lenses and some that are a bit more unique, some that are, it's called a probe lens that is about one, one and a half feet long and uh, an inch wide. And we were able to submerge that into a narrow tube that were filled with plankton to kind of get an idea of what it might be like swimming through this cloud of plankton in the ocean. I feel like we heard it here, despite uh, all of Josh's protestations, this team created the plankton documentary. So I mean, I'm oh, no, I'm extremely proud of it. Uh, uh, having the scripts were difficult to write because one of the things is most of our knowledge of natural history of a lot of these creatures, there's like one paper from the 1930s. But, um, you know, knowing what these things do other than what they are, I mean, even what they are is sometimes difficult. But uh, what they do all day, how they relate to each other, who eats who, you know, we still have a huge gap in our knowledge. Um, and then trying to tell these stories, I mean, one of the goals was to not make it look like you were looking through a microscope at a, you know, a creature that's kind of smushed between a plate, but actually as if you were swimming in the ocean with them and they are acting as they might. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was definitely a, a challenge to try to show these creatures off in their best light and uh and also what what they're doing out there all the time can you give us a little bit more detail about a particular episode because i am still having a hard time imagining what do they do and and how does it stay interesting right so i mean our episodes were all themed so we had one called hide and seek which is all about how if you have nothing to hide behind how do you not get eaten as a small creature um, so there's different ways being transparent or, uh, having other ways, you know, red, the color red doesn't, uh, show in the ocean because blue comes through and the way the light spectrum works. So if you have a red stomach, for instance, that can kind of hide what you ate. Um, we had episodes about predators and how everything is trying not to get eaten and you have to still find your food. Um, so, uh, there's ones about eyes in the ocean. So we have, you know, baby flatfish. So like halibut and sole in these that have eyes on the same side of their head. But when they swim in the plankton, they have actually, they look like a regular fish. So their eyes migrate. So when we caught them in the plankton at different stages, their eyes are either on both sides of their head or starting to move to the other side. So these are the sorts of things that, um, we got to show in the episodes um, metamorphosis also so similar to your butterfly in your classroom and whatever from uh, all, a lot of the creatures in the plankton go through these stages that are unrecognizable from each other from like a little spiky ball into a worm-like creature and then that grows up into uh, you know a sea star uh, and so we are trying to kind of showing these things seasonally at different stages um, pretty much everything looks cool that's the other advantage of filming plankton. Uh, it's all beautiful uh, in its own alien, strange way. We spend a lot of time today in our class talking a little bit about scripting and at what point you can begin to script a podcast or a story of any sort. So how, how I mean, with plankton, it seems to me like there's so much you don't know. So at what point were you like starting to be like, oh, this is the story. This is the episode. This is like, how did you script something so yeah, foreign? So um, I started writing a script 
based on what we knew. And then it uh, turns out we couldn't film most of those creatures. So then it was a matter of what we could film and then finding stories. Uh, for instance, um, there's these comb jellies, which are, are not, they're, they're similar to jellyfish, but they're, they're a different group. And um, they have these rows of, of uh, feathery kind of cilia that go in, in rainbow colors. And um, they're really fun to film. And, and our videographers, one of our other videographers said, uh, there's something crawling inside of it. And it turns out that was a kind of parasite. That's this little crustacean that lives in them. And so we did a whole story about um, these things grow up inside the jelly and then they go out to the outside and they kind of hang off the outside and we got different life stages. So that was something that we didn't plan on, but because we you know, got those things and that we could write the kind of story. Uh, it's always a balance between anthropomorphizing the creatures and uh, and also you know, being true, telling good stories, but also being kind of not um, overly kind of, I mean, we've all watched nature documentaries that are a little, the dial is turned up a little too far on the, uh, uh, on the kind of drama that occurs. Um, so we tried to kind of keep that uh, at, a, at, a, at the right level. Uh, <laughs> I did watch a nature documentary recently where I actually felt like like I was in so much terror the whole time that it was distracting. Um, so Bennett, you were also involved in another series of shorts called Field Notes. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what that what is. Yeah, Field Notes is a series about a small little piece of um, a forest called Morrison Creek in Vancouver on Vancouver Island. Uh, and through the use of trail cameras, we glimpsed the lives of a ton of different animals that uh, live and pass through uh, Morrison Creek. And we get to experience, uh, we, can, we get to experience how they go about their day-to-day -day lives without interfering by being there ourselves. And it's a very intimate um, kind of experience hanging out with different animals of the forest. And Bennett, why why there? Why this particular location? Yeah, when you're walking through Morrison Creek, it doesn't immediately uh, come upon you that this is kind of a unique and special place. Um, but how we really started here, although it, it is kind of an interesting place, but how we started was our colleague Grant Caligari, another videographer, he was really interested in filming bears rubbing trees. And one of the main, one of the ways you could do that by setting up trail cameras because it'd be rather challenging actually finding a bear at the right moment um, in person rubbing a tree so we had found a tree with some scratch marks on it and some there was some shine to it indicating that a bear had been using it to communicate with others um, so he set up some cameras there and sure enough he captured exactly that bears rubbing this tree but there was also some other surprises by finding other animals um, using the same space and passing through. And we thought it was very interesting seeing all the diversity coming through this small little area in a forest. Um, so that led us to leaving up a few more cameras in, in the same area um, for a year and more. And it was one of the coolest things was seeing how individuals and changed over the seasons and um and and who might show up when and all kinds of um interesting surprises along the way 
So tell, tell us uh, about a favorite episode or a particular interesting surprise. Yeah, so um, I joined kind of midway through this process, and I thought it would be interesting to venture a little bit further from that tree rubbing um, location. And I thought it would be really interesting to set up cameras along one of the streams in Morrison Creek. And um, timing that with the salmon run to hopefully capture some bears uh, hunting and, and see maybe who else might be around and taking advantage of this fish run. Um, so that was definitely one of my favorite. It was amazing seeing all the different bears coming through, some with big gashes on their sides, uh, clearly got into some trouble with maybe another bear. Um, whole families walking down the stream together and other animals as well, taking advantage, some raccoons going up and down the stream, pine marten exploring, some eagles coming and picking the leftovers that bears, um, certain bears didn't want, so, yeah. And um, can you tell us a little bit about our next series? Do you know anything about um, uh, about the um, Bear Earth series? And can you introduce us? Have you seen it? <laughs> I have, yes. And I've uh, gone on some adventures filming um, the Bear Earth as well. And it's this great epic story of all kinds of our scientists peeling back layers of the earth and uh, getting a greater understanding of a lot of the geology um and of of where we live and uh cat led that so i'll let you take it away cat thank you bennett yeah oh man bare earth Woo! bare earth is a mammoth of, of a series and we just wrapped and i am so so proud i think if uh if micro if the micro world series was focusing on the tiny Bear Earth is the complete opposite. So what the Bear Earth series is all about is finding answers to some pretty big questions by taking a big picture view of the problem. And we mean that very literally. So for instance, like one episode is all about tracking how fresh water is stored in the mountain landscape as a result of climate change. And how we take a big picture view of that is we have researchers that literally go up into a plane and fly all around our coastal mountains, mapping out glaciers and snowpack every year to find out how our snow and ice is changing. It's big picture, long-term coastal monitoring, and we call this plane the Airborne Coastal Observatory. And this plane has a part in every episode. So that first episode, we meet pilot Robin Stewart and Steve Beffert, the geospatial technician that's up in the plane using what are essentially lasers and a multitude of cameras to map out these glaciers. And then we meet the researchers on the ground who are skiing across these snowy peaks to ground truth the data and use it to tell us more about climate change. And that's just one episode. <laughs> so other episodes are about mapping kelp and archaeology and predicting landslides on the Fraser River that block the salmon migration. It's these big stories that having that big picture view really helps us to navigate these these problems or answer these questions. I love when you describe it because it becomes so clear and already I can, you know, see the sort of suspense of um, you know, the, the driving the plane and what you're going to see. So is this research that has been going on um, for a long time anyway? And when you begin a research project like this, 
did someone from the very beginning say, oh, it's going to make an awesome, you know, mini documentary series, a mini, mini micro uh, documentary series? Or is that something that kind of comes over time? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this research we have been doing for a long time. For instance, I mean, the the Airborne Coastal Observatory, I mean, the plane is a big part of that, but it's also drones and it's it's satellites you know there's a lot of ways to monitor from the sky the plane was relatively new when we started planning the series and that's what sort of brought some of the excitement around it but you know these these you know big picture bird's eye view mapping uh, you know research projects are you know have been going on for a, a while at Hackeye and are a big part of what we do you know and you know like I was saying like they cover you know it's not just studying the snowpack and glaciers it's really like all of, it's 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 every landscape that we cover in this series you know so um yeah it's, it's been going on for a while and do you find uh, one of the things that the students at the Cortez Online Academy often say you know and they're 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 teenagers they're young people they're really hip on climate change in a way that most of us probably weren't uh when we were teenagers and I hear over and over again that one of the things that really is hard I mean to the point of mental health challenges and anxiety, et cetera, is taking in the story of climate change and what they're facing, right, as a, as a generation, as a people. And so again and again, I hear this sort of cry for why can't we have more positive stories or uh, media that makes it feel accessible. And I feel like with climate change, which is, you know, overarching all of these things, it's really hard to put a good spin on it because it's a it's a dark story. Um, and I'm wondering, at the same time, I feel like this, you know, this series that you're talking about is maybe the most right on the edge of that despair, uh, but also so beautiful um, and, and, you know, visual. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you find the storytelling process in regard to this and how you manage your own, you know, kind of feelings of overwhelm while also communicating a story? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, uh, and it's funny, because I, I, you know, in talking to friends of mine who have kids, like, it's such a recurring theme, like this stuff is heavy, like what kids and teenagers, I mean, even adults, what we're dealing with on the sides of our personal lives, this like heavy climate change, topic that's like this elephant in every room um you know it's it's haunting um and these stories yeah they're you know the videos are fun and interesting and there's good music and great visuals but it's it's scary the the science that we're finding um in some of these stories um i mean i think how i approach this type of storytelling to make it not so depressing and and hopeful is that is to have sort of a solutions based you know element in every story so you know these are researchers who are studying climate change and and oftentimes you know a part of their research is well what can we do this is the problem what can we do to help so for instance kelp mapping you know yes we're seeing how climate change is impacting kelp forests but it's you know we're identifying the kelp beds that are at most risk so that we can protect them right and and put them in protected areas so so I think having at least, you know, some some sort of solution or something that we can do to help our planet, despite, you know, everything that's happening to it puts a bit of a bit of a positive spin on it and at least makes it a little a little more bearable <laughs> to uh, 
to watch because it because it is it can be overload all of the climate change talk as important as it is it can be just crushing when that's all that you're ever hearing so you know at least we have a bit of a positive outlook on it yeah if i may um i think another really cool thing is especially with the bare earth series is um just the people that are actually doing the science and what it actually looks like to see them doing it it's like so much hardcore more hardcore than you think of when you think of like scientists doing this work it's like these guys out on their skis like literally trudging through the snow or you know out in the boat in this extreme weather like doing the drone you know so i think in terms of like how it's helping the future um i know a lot in my past in the upbringing it wasn't that just wasn't what you expected it's really cool to show that these scientists are out there doing like really cool physical outdoor work and it's actually working toward this much bigger end so it's a little bit hopeful in the sense that maybe it will inspire other people to kind of like help in that mission Katrina. Yeah, this series was a lot of fun to shoot. This was a lot of like, we're filming in planes, we're filming underwater, we're in caves, <laughs> like squeezing into little openings, all these Bennett was, you know, to, to get to the, to the where the archaeologists are studying this. Yeah, and this this series was a lot, to, a lot of fun to film. It made it a bit of a beast to edit, but a lot of fun to film. Lucky Bennett got to do all the cool stuff. <laughs> Tell us, a, tell, you know, tell me, take me through your favorite episode or one of your favorite episodes, because I bet there's a lot. Yeah, I think maybe the episode that might be my favorite uh, in that episode, archaeologists are using LIDAR data from a, from the plane to strip away the trees on the landscape to where they can see this bare earth, <laughs> hence the name for the series. Um, and, and this bare earth landscape reveals sinkholes that sort of tell the archaeologists where they might find caves beneath the surface. And in those caves is where they find clues to the first peoples of these lands. So I won't spoil like, what they find in the caves. You'll have to watch the episode to find out. But that sort of work, um, you know, is really proving what First Nation people have always maintained, which is that they have been on these lands for millennia. Um, you know, in that in that archaeology episode, you know, the Quetzino Nation was absolutely integral to the to the research and to the filming. Um, but it was just so much fun, you know, to see what what Bennett captured in those caves, and and there's just so much mystery and intrigue in that. That was uh, my favorite one to to produce. I can't wait. Yeah, in general, with some of these series, one of the things is like there's many different scientists look like many different things and there's many different ways to be a scientist um, and that can be in caves it can be in a plane it can be uh, underwater it can be in a lab um, you know it's not some of the people on our teams wear lab coats but uh, for safety reasons but they're, they're not all uh, you know the kind of kooky balding white guy in a lab coat that some people might imagine when they think of a scientist um in fact most of our people are outside uh, a good chunk of the time or at least for part of their job so um yeah it's really inspiring hopefully for for people who don't necessarily have scientists close to them that they have access to um that you know this is what a scientist looks like and there's also um you know kind of as we've said on our team we need artists we need uh you know all of our videos have music to them all of our there's there's so many different ways to contribute to science science communication that don't necessarily involve um you know the hardcore math and things like that that some might scare people off 
we need that too. <laughs> we need specialists. But uh, yeah, there's there's many different ways. So hopefully some of these series kind of show uh, the various ways that people can kind of contribute if they're interested in these these sorts of topics. So that sets the stage for one last series, um, which I believe is is actually not available yet to the public. But uh, tell us a little bit about about whale bones, Josh. Yeah, so uh, kind of our final series for this year and, and into the new year is called Whale Bones. Uh, so a humpback whale, a young humpback whale, washed up on Calvert Island on the central coast of, of British Columbia, uh, on the outer coast where we also have an ecological observatory. Um, and immediately afterwards, um, flew some experts up to do what's called a necropsy, which is uh, basically an autopsy. It's for a human, a necropsy is for an animal. Try to figure out how this, this whale died. Um, and then in addition to that, they also called in uh, a fellow by the name of Mike DeRoos, who lives on Salt Spring Island and is a world expert in articulating skeletons, especially whales. Uh, so he did the blue whale at, at the University of British Columbia, um, a lot of the stuff in Telegraph Cove. His, his work is all over the world. Um, and so over three years, uh, this whale, we follow this whale's journey as it goes from being on the beach, finding out how it died, getting the bones, getting them cleaned, figuring out how to, to make this whale, uh, you know, kind of alive again. And then it, it eventually hangs in, in the lodge in, on, on Calvert Island. Uh, kind of to continue its story along. So, uh, yeah, each episode kind of follows different parts and, and humpback whales and how they're doing and uh, this individual whale as well as, uh, yeah, how, how do you articulate a whale skeleton and clean it of all its oils and things like that. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that uh, on our YouTube channel or, or on any of our social media. And is, is there something more mysterious about this whale than the usual one? Um, I mean, the funny part is, is like there wasn't a huge amount of, of mystery as to how this, the mystery is this whale wasn't known. So you, you can identify whales from their, uh, what's underneath their fluke or their tail. It's like a fingerprint. Uh, this whale was not in a catalog. It was only a couple of years old. So uh, we don't know a heck of a lot about it. Um, it's in the first episode, so I'm not even really giving it away. It was hit by a boat. Um <laughs> Spoiler alert. No. See, there's six episodes and that kind of get that's not really the whole thing is how this whale died. It's more about how it lived uh, and then how can we find out more about it? Um, what what can this whale kind of teach us about its species? Um, yeah. So was there anything in particular? I mean, it was in the news this week that there were five or six humpbacks that have washed up on the B.C. coast recently. So while their numbers are improving, um, people might be seeing them more and more, you know, around around them if you live on the coast. Um, they're still at only about half of what they were pre-whaling population, and um, there's still a lot of threats. So we still don't, they live most of their life underwater too. So I think inherently there's a mystery about what they're doing. Um, they're traveling thousands of kilometers to Hawaii and Mexico and then back up here to feed. So um, yeah, there's still a lot to learn. And I think whales are, are good ambassadors to thinking about kind of the environment more broadly. And who doesn't love a whale, right? <laughs> I Even a dead whale. Uh, I can say I was there at the, uh, at the necropsy and it does not smell fantastic. And that's why you have to clean the bones really well because you don't want it hanging in the lodge above where people are eating and still, still smelling. So, um, 
but yeah, it, it's it's pretty interesting to be that close. There's also barnacles that live on them that only live on whales. And, you know, as you get kind of close to these creatures, you start to see the the kind of nuance. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty special. I was wondering, um, how often is it that you as a team get to sit down and talk about what you're doing and um, whether you serve uh, as kind of a creative or editorial board for each other, or is this pretty unusual? You need a team. It's really hard to do this stuff on your own, um, both for, as we were talking earlier, about people's expertise and their what they're good at between shooting the videos, editing. I mean, we have really multi-talented people that wear a lot of different hats, but you can't be everything all at once. And so just for bouncing ideas, uh, getting feedback on scripts, on episodes throughout the whole process, um, yeah, we really do work as a as a team. All of the um, we don't quite have the uh, like a giant BBC Planet Earth, but uh, we in our small team we do kind of all get to to do quite a few different things. We've got our bases covered between us. <laughs> And do you have uh, burning questions for each other, or do you pretty much work those out in your editorial process? Um, you know, do, like, do you get to know each other and um, uh, and lots of different parts of your lives? I would say that second one is probably how it goes. I, I don't have any burning questions for these guys. I saw them yesterday, so. <laughs> I have one question for Josh. Josh, when you were at the scene of this whale necropsy, which stank to high yeah. heaven, how long did it take to wash that smell off you? <laughs> oh, see, I didn't have to actually dive in. Uh, the, the people that were doing the necropsy themselves were wearing uh, like hazmat suits that they taped the bottoms of and what have you. Uh, they do a lot of these, so they're a little immune. Uh, in my past life, I, I did work with whales and, and dolphins and, and tur sea turtles and stuff. Um, and so I have done necropsies before. Nothing smells worse than Oof. a dead sea turtle. Uh, but I would say in that case, if you do ever have a chance to be at a necropsy and you do, it will not come out of that clothing. So, uh, you know, there- You've it, been it warned. Is, yeah, be warned. It, it is not, it is, it is cool in the way that, um, yeah, it, that it's really interesting because their physiology, they're mammals, but they, you know, have very different physiology. So it's kind of cool to see what goes on inside. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I, I, you have to smell it to, to, to believe it. Experience yeah, that. Whatever, yeah. whatever the listeners think a whale necropsy is, like you don't know until you see it. Like it is worth tuning into the first episode just to see what in the world a whale necropsy looks like, and it is wild and kind of disgusting but really cool plus i just want that <laughs> quote for this episode <laughs> you know if you are ever at a whale necropsy you'll yeah. never get that smell out of your clothes <laughs> yeah um, we're, really, also, we're painting uh, a picture here as a as a as a, a public service announcement don't touch uh, anything dead like that there are uh zoonotic diseases uh, that can spread between uh this is something that you know there is a, a a unit that comes in and and oftentimes that is what they're trying to figure out is how this thing died was it disease or ship strike uh was it old age um you know things do die uh, out in the water and so um yeah in general don't touch dead things is it is a good is a good mantra and at the same time you know like anything being curious about 
nature around you. And if you see these things there uh, and are noticing things, that's often, you know, we have community partners all over the place, uh, including on Cortez that help us with projects because we can't be everywhere. So for instance, for sea stars, um, monitoring how they're wasting disease that hit them. Uh, we have partners, including on Cortez, that are looking at that. Um, so yeah, if you notice things in the environment, it's it's worth thinking about what might be happening. If you see things that you've never seen before, you know you know your local environment kind of better than than anybody else because you spend the most time there. So everyone's a scientist if they want. I'm hoping that we can, uh, in our last minutes with you, use this opportunity to get some of your advice for our Cortez Island Academy students and the other young people who are listening, uh, particularly for those who um, are seeing their future perhaps being in some form of truth-based storytelling, podcasting, science-based communications, or as a scientist and doing the exploring. What is, what's your advice for getting started um, and moving down that path? I oh. think it's something I think, and maybe Josh said it earlier, but just following your own curiosity. Like if you're not sure what the story is, follow your own curiosity. Because if something intrigues you, or if you're like, well, why does that happen? Or why does that work this way? I mean, probably others are th wondering the same thing. Also, always triple check your sound if you're making a video. <laughs> yeah, I just think every I like follow your passions and and don't think that there's one way you can contribute there's there's so many different ways that you can and um also as you've heard today with the folks you know photography is useful sound is useful there's so many different ways that you can do things and so i think your hobbies can turn into your profession uh or or, or vice versa um you know it, it's important you, you spend the most time as an adult at work. So I think it's it's important to, to like what you do. Uh, and if you can find something that, you know, keeps you going all, all the time, uh, even when it, it can be, you know, there is despair that creeps in. But I think there's also a lot of hope uh, that we see and, and kind of uh, inspiration from working with these scientists that are kind of tracking these these changes. And Christina, we all need to hear from you because we want to know if you are currently an artist, but you're wanting to uh, also be able to communicate these truths. How you? How do you get started? Well, I was just going to say, pick a software and learn it. Get to be good at a software. I mean, there's so many uh, applicable softwares out there, and I'm, my brain always goes to production. Um, and like Kat was saying, you know, learn how to, if you wanted to do podcasting, learn, you know, Adobe Audition. If you want to do video editing, get on, you know, Premiere or Final Cut Pro and just go out, find a story and put one together and see, uh, take a look at it and just see what stinks and what's good and then start a new one. I mean, the only reason, the only way you can really learn how to do stuff like this is to just do it, make mistakes, and then fix them the next time. Alana, and tell me there is a way to fall deeply in love with plankton and make a career out of such a tiny passion. <laughs> to be honest, you know, my career um, path did not go the planktonic way. Um, I started as a freshwater scientist in northern Saskatchewan um, and then transitioned into scuba diving. And now I work as a marine biologist. And so I kind of like what Josh said, you know, about pursuing 
all of the different passions that you might have um, available to you. Because in science these days, whether it's science, um, you know, type working in a lab or working in the field, or if it's science communication, we really just need a bunch of different skill sets brought to the table. It's no longer, you know, choosing one thing and being put in a box and then sticking to it all through your undergrad, your master's and a PhD. Um, it's not even anymore sort of the line of, you know, Western or colonial uh, education. There's so many ways to achieve um, scientific careers or scientific communication careers. And we truly just need a variety of skill sets in this field. So I I would say, you know, to people who are um, near graduation or even just, you know, young people um, in general, just pursue as many of these interests as you have and just continuously do things that um, make you feel fulfilled and that drive your passion for the natural world. And I guarantee that as you develop those and as you connect with other people who are also in those areas, you will be contributing in a meaningful way to the scientific world. And Bennett, are you? Do you have words of, of wisdom for for the young people getting started on their journeys? Yeah, sure. Um, I wouldn't. First of all, I just wouldn't stress uh, too much. I was always so worried about what I'd be doing next, and I think a really important step is figuring out what you'd love to do, um, and and pursuing that. There's a a Japanese teaching called Ikigai, which um, I used early on in my career to figure out what I would like to do with my life. And that's what you're good at combined with what you'd love to do and what you can be paid for and then what the world needs. And then that kind of helps drive towards um, a meaningful career that um, you'll be satisfied with. I'm going to send some grown-ups even your way, Bennett, because I think you need to take a few of us through. <laughs> what, what did you say that yeah, was this called? knowledge can definitely be applied to adults as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Bennett, what was that called, the, the practice? Ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I. Um, it also sounds like it would be delicious, doesn't it? Ikigai. <laughs> um so tell me what's next. Uh, what's next as in like you're about to jump on a plane and fly up to uh, Culver Island or what's next like you're already planning your next video series. I would love to just hear from all of you about uh, where are you going from here? Well, Kat and I already started on Long Story Short season two. We just sent, I just sent my first script over to Mercedes. So that's officially underway. And um going to spend the winter kind of editing and getting ready for a few new series coming out this spring hunkering down i'm also getting ready we have a series coming out in our season two all it's all about edna which again may not sound exciting but i get to go follow bowhead whales on baffin island so i'm very excited about that we've just started trip planning for that again so I'll just spend the next winter, you know, looking forward to the end of next summer. <laughs> I am gearing up to edit the next Micro Worlds, I'm working with Josh, and we're taking a bit of a different um, avenue by looking at insects, which we had filmed over the summer and spring and fall, and uh, super excited to put those stories together. Yeah, you were out filming this morning, right, Bennett? You were filming... 
Yeah, we were taking a walk uh, through some of the forests on Quadra. Came across a little salamander, which was very exciting to see. But um, still keeping our eyes out for all kinds of creatures to film and share with uh, everybody. And that, yeah, that's we're kind fun. of transitioning to season two. So yeah, Microworld season two is about coastal in- insects and other bugs. Um, so working on scripting that and kind of organizing um, everything we shot and figuring out kind of the storylines there. Um, and then, yeah, moving kind of through these different series as we've shifted, that's the kind of nice part is now we get to learn, take what we learned from season one, kind of apply that to season two. And maybe it's a little different topic or maybe we're just a bit more experienced, but uh, we have no lack of topics to cover uh, put it put it that way it's a matter of narrowing it down and kind of figuring out which story arcs are, are most interesting or where there might be gaps where there hasn't been somebody that you know has done it before so yeah and on the science side of things for the biodiversity lab we're consistently looking for new ways in which we can collect biodiversity um, and so the micro world series like really challenged us to do just that because we wanted to uh, a meet as many of the script components as we could um, and b just try to show the diversity in the ocean around Quadra. Uh, and so going into the um, the new year, we're going to be adding a few new uh, different tools. One is a tool that allows us to collect sediment from upwards of 300, 400 meters and look at the different diversity of um, organisms in the sediment. We're also going to be uh, adding some new nets, new plankton nets to our um, methodologies where these ones can actually close at certain depths. So instead of moving the net through the entire water column we can drop it down to 300 meters close it off there and then we can look at organisms just from that depth alone um, and then moving into the spring and the summer we'll likely be ramping up for some bio blitzes um, our lab specializes in the plankton side of things so it'll probably be plankton related blitzes for us um, but Hackeye as a whole often does um, some pretty incredible um, blitzes across the board so we'll definitely be involved in all of that I really like this idea, Alana, that you just presented, that the scientists are sort of working for the writers to do the research <laughs> so they're going to make good scripts. So uh, what a turn of events um, as a writer. I love the concept. Um, and I'm just going to lay out that our next year Cortez Island Academy might be a little bit more forest ecology based. So I'm highly uh, uh, hoping that you're going to be like, oh, yeah, some of our terrestrial work might be a good fit for uh, those people over there on Cortez. Thank you so much for joining us today for your for your you know amazing work and your humor and just being generally good spirits about always sharing with us both at Cortez Island Academy and at Folk University about the work, the incredible work that happens, um, you know, kind of in, around the vortex of, of Quadra Island uh, and the Hakai uh, Institute, as well as the Tula Foundation. So I know a lot of you have nothing to do with Quadra Island itself, but we really feel like um, it me- puts uh, these little coastal islands at the center of this amazing force of curiosity and scientific passion and amazing storytelling. So it feels amazing to be in your orbit. And I cannot thank you enough. 
Thank, thank you so, you much, so for much for having us. Oh, jinx. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, thank you so much. It was really lovely to speak with you. And I'm hoping you can give just one last call out when people are like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to learn more and go see these. Where do they go? Yeah, so if you search for Hackeye Institute on YouTube, um, or you can follow us, we're at Hackeye Institute on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, or you can go to our website, hackeye.org. Uh, all of our stuff is up there. We love hearing from people too. If you leave comments underneath, or you want to just get in touch with us and and you know let us know what uh, maybe topics you want to see covered, which ones you like, um, we always use that information. Or if you, or if you think there's an audience that you know would love to hear from us that we don't know about, so. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM and on the web at CortezRadio.ca. We are so lucky to have the, the scientists and storytellers from the Hakai Institution and the Tula Foundation with us today, as well as students from the Cortez Island Academy. Until next time, thank you very much, neighbor. I got a moon out my window in the night And I got a sun out my doorway when it gets light I got stones on the mountain
Right.